This is a previously recorded episode. Views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. This show is broadcasting live from the Podcast Detroit studios in Royal Oak, Michigan. For more information about the show or our network, please visit www.podcastdetroit.com. You're listening to the Detroit Sports Rag Podcast. Simon Cowell of Rochester. Plagiarized the work of a blogger, David Harnes. Now, what's going on with that? Where's my number? Sorry. It was condescending back. I had a few too many, and I just drove home, and then just fucking, yeah. Is it true to sexually harass a co worker uh, in the college newspaper? It's a Detroit sports website. Uh, I don't say this. This 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 puke isn't even worth being mentioned. The only time we should mention him is for his obituary. Except okay. no one will care when he's dead. We're talking to T Foz, Terry Foster, ninety-seven one. Uh, this guy got his hands into everything: failed restaurants, failed marriages, failed liquor licenses. This guy's an animal. I make good choices nowadays. Before we get started. Jeff Moore, is that correct? Lawrence, you here to do the interview today, or yeah. what's the deal? Yeah, no, I just... All right, well, we, we, I'm sure Terry greatly appreciates that. The other thing is, you, you guys are raising hell out there in Detroit, aren't you? I, I, I've got some people telling me, you better I go on that show with those guys. Those guys are making everybody angry and getting them mad and doing stuff, so you're, you're creating quite a stir back there in Detroit. DSR podcast number 43, Tuesday, August 23rd. I am Jeff Moss. I am co-hostless today, Jasper Apollonia. As we mentioned last week, as he got the news live on air that he had been hired um, by Sirius XM Sports uh, for a paid internship program that they're running, he's out in New York looking for an apartment, and he will be joining Sirius XM I think in a couple of weeks, he might have one or two more shows here when he gets back. I should tell you the DSR podcast is sponsored by CaliTickets.com. Cali, as in C A L I, going back to Cali. Any concert needs that you have, Pearl Jam, Justin Bieber, you can, you can uh, come and meet me next Thursday. Prophets of Rage is a super group of Rage Against the Machine. Public Enemy and Cypress Hill takes the stage at DTE. Um, 
All your ticket needs, KaleyTickets.com. You can call them at 877-225-8425, 877-225-8425. And if you mention the DSR or Joff Mess or Bill Simonson, you will get a 10% discount. Tonight's show is going to be a little different than our normal format. We have a guest in-house who really needs no introduction if you have uh, lived in this city for any great amount of time. He used to be on WDIV in the 80s. He hosted the Tigers pregame show. The Locker Room on both, I think, WDIV as a TV program and then also as a radio show on 1270. Work with the Pistons. The man needs no introduction, even though I just gave him one. Eli Zarrett, welcome to uh, the DSR Podcast, and thanks for coming in. Hey, my pleasure. I've heard a lot about you, and um, I'm anxious to get the treatment. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, how much of that was bad? Well, I think you know you've you've uh, you're either going to you're not going to build a reputation unless you take a few people down and you have the you know the guts to say things. But um, that's probably. That's your, that, that's why when you asked me, I said, "Do you want a scorch and burn type of show?" I don't know if I'm going to give that to you, but I know you've you've made a couple of uh, people um, not like you as much as you probably no. want to be not liked. No, well, no, there's which is fine, uh, but yeah, no, I and I said to you, I said, "I'm not looking for anything. I kind of want to just talk about your career, uh, spanning what four decades, really, uh, in 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 a lot of different venues. I mean, TV, radio. You wrote a book with Denny McLean." Now, kind of in semi-retirement, I guess, from the public. Um, I represent some clients right. on the radio. I basically do advertising. By the way, my my idol when I was growing up was Howard Cosell. I was growing up in the '60s, living in New York, and um, <clears throat> people hated Howard Cosell. He became really famous when I uh, did Monday Night Football, and fans would. There was one time in Denver, a fan threw a brick through the TV, and Cosell loved it. And I realized that if you just play it down the middle. And you're kind of pablum. You may last a long time, but you're not going to really be a star unless you get people on both sides that really, really like you and really, really don't like you. You have to have an effect on people. They have, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, bring out some type of emotion in them. Otherwise, who cares? Well, I don't think you. I've never done it to. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't think I'm a shock jock. I've just given my opinion. My opinion sometimes isn't popular in this town, and I think you basically did the same thing in your career. You were, you know. And we'll get into this later. But you know, ne- never like it is today. Really, it's so ch- it's changed. Sports talk radio, the whole dialogue. I mean, Donald Trump couldn't have been Donald Trump twenty years ago, and sports talk radio couldn't have existed the way it does now. Where it's really, uh, you know, guys that are on the air that don't go cover the team every day and have nothing to protect their reputation is I'll say whatever I want. I'll have an opinion. It used to be you had to put the opinion on the side. There was the news portion and the editorial portion. My idol or the guy that I – locally who I worked under, I, I idolized him to a degree, Al Ackerman, um, was that way where he would give the news. Then he would sit and say, OK, and then he put commentary. Now it's all mixed together. Now it's all what I think every minute, every second and, and just let it fly. Well, to a certain extent, I think that may be the case. But in TV, which were you know you, where you became famous on TV, um, doing what five and eleven o'clock right. sportscast right. Right. is completely changed. Where Ackerman, you to a certain extent, would give your opinion on things um, today. That job is. Comp- I mean, you you made a good living. Doing that, was, jo- doing I'm, that I'm job. I'm very lucky that I made. I, I was in this business when it paid. 
when people actually needed to watch local news because there was news there right. and they couldn't get it anywhere else. Now it's become a, a pathetic afterthought because it's already over by the time they come on. They got nothing. There's, there's nothing new to say. But they're not allowed to. I mean, you look right. at a guy like Brad Galley at Channel 7 right. who out of college basically got hired uh, to do a job that you know that you did at a time where once again you had to have a resume you had to work your way up i would i would think a guy comes out of college and next thing you know he's doing what don shane you right. did right. Uh, people right. of that ilk and there's no commentary there it's reading the doing the highlights the happy go lucky he could he just doesn't know how to do it he you could. Think, you think they would allow him to do it at this, oh, this I th- day and age? I think he could have a little personality. Yeah, I've I've watched him. Like I, a friend of mine was the uh, uh, news director at Channel Four. I don't know five or six years ago, maybe longer. And he went on to uh, become the general manager of a station in, in Florida. But I was watching. You know, and he was, we would talk, and he would tell me, you know, what his philosophy is. And, and, and I was watching. He got a new sportscaster. His name, her name was Katrina Hancock. And after about a month, I said, you know, Bobby, I think she thinks her job is to promote the teams. I think she thinks that her job is to say, hey, we got a game tonight, folks, and it's so exciting. Let's go win it. And I'd say, where does that come from? Where's the, jur- where, where's the journalism? There's like nothing here. So No, it's bizarre. And, that, and Katrina, Brad Galley, so these people coming up, they never saw, I don't think, an Al Ackerman. They never saw you. They don't even, I don't know if they ever saw Howard Cosell. But people who would actually come on and have a take on an issue – uh, would com- give but commentary. They, they hear it all the time. They, they hear radio. They, they hear talk radio. They can have an opinion. They just they're scared to say it. I, I'll tell you a story. And, and I love Ray Lane. Don't get me wrong. Great guy. He's eighty four now, uh, still smoking and drinking, and he's still okay. But in nineteen seventy five, I just started in radio. I've been in radio about a year, and he's the president of the Detroit or the, the, the Detroit Sports Broadcast Association. So I go down to my first meeting, and I'm excited. Hey, here's Ray Lane. I'm new at this. I'm a radio guy. I'm on FM. Nobody listens to FM, but, you know, who knows? And so here's Ray with opinions. He's got a, people, a bunch of people around him, and he's saying, you know, Jim Campbell this and, and Russ Thomas that. He's, he's, he's talking like a sports fan, right. giving opinions about what's good and what's bad. And so that night the Tigers lose a, a close game, and I'm saying, I'm going to watch Ray Lane. And he comes on and says, well, our boys lost another tough one tonight, but we'll come back and get them tomorrow. I'll go, Where, where's the guy that I saw this afternoon. So he played it safe. Right. He was down, and he's in the Michigan Sports Hall of Fame. Ackerman, who had an opinion every night, isn't in it. So, you know, uh, back then, though, there was still, you know, and, and even today, if he wanted to have an opinion, he'd have one. He's scared to because he wants to keep the job, doesn't want to piss anybody off and lose the job. Right. And that's been one of the big changes I've seen over the 30, 40 years of watching local sports television. What you think when ESPN came around? And there were highlights that you could get highlights all day long. You think the one thing that a local person like yourself or someone handling that uh, 5 or 11 or 6 p.m. sports cast could give you that, you know, Stuart Scott or Dan Patrick isn't going to give you by doing a Tigers or Red Wing highlight is commentary on what they're seeing. And it's just. Ackerman once said, he said, Eli, put a little of yourself into every sports cast. And that was just very basic advice. And so most of the time, the three and a half minutes I'd have, and every night, there's Don, there's me. And I guess when I came back to Channel 2, there was Bernie. Before that, it was me on Channel 4, Fred McLeod on Channel 2, and Garagiola on, on Channel 7. And, and we're basically doing that. We have three and a half minutes. The Tigers play the Pistons. So you got to show most of its highlights. But there's that 15 seconds leading in 
where you can say something. And I would always try and, and say something because people, I, I would, it's, people want to know what you think. That's right. why they. That's why they listen. They, they otherwise, those are the other guys. You, you'll at least give them some insight because supposedly you're closer to the action and you can help them out. And growing way. up, you guys were Shane, Bernie, and you. It, it was a celebrity status. I mean, it was almost like it was as regular as Tom Brokaw uh, doing Dan Rather, Peter Jennings. Right. It was like it was a stability. I explain to people. I explain to people. Let's let's take 1984 for example. All right, there were 48 Tiger games on television. That's it. So each one was an event. There were 162 games on, only 48. So when a game was on, it was a big event. But on a regular weeknight, when the game wasn't televised, so on a Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever it is, if you don't listen to Ernie on the radio, if you don't catch me at 11.15 to see what happened, and maybe Bob Reynolds or whatever's doing JR, then you didn't know. You'd wake up the next morning, and the free press didn't have it because with the Back then, the presses right. and everything. So they're not going to have it until the afternoon. You didn't know what happened in the game. So there was a need for the 11 o'clock news to show you those highlights. And, of course, if it wasn't, if it wasn't on the air, you know, you'd have to send your crew there and you'd, you'd get some highlights and you put them together. But that's why it's been rendered ineffective, and that's why you get people making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, whereas back then – there was some serious cash when when Bill Bonds was making a million. Oh, yeah. and, you know they 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 paid for personalities back yeah. then, and and they don't anymore. Let's go back. Let's talk. Let's start there with the pregame show, because and you say forty eight games a year, which I think probably some of my younger audience can't even fathom that they didn't see every single game. I mean, you put one game a year on Fox Sports Detroit two, and people started having a, a heart attack. <laughs> Where, like, Where is, the is game? it? Where's the game? Like you don't you don't understand that we used to you know treasure. These games, and not only the games, the pregame show was must see TV. And it, if you're watching Fox Sports Detroit now with Mickey York and these pregame right. shows where they're the broadcast partner, and you're you're not sure if you're watching Fox Sports Detroit or a PR for the Tigers, it wasn't like that back then. You'd come on, and if the Tigers were in a, in a in a rut. I mean, that's what you were saying. And Al Kaline, George Kell, they weren't BSing anyone. When you, would, when you would interview them, then you'd have the roundtable with some of the beat writers? I never did the roundtable. Oh, was that after you? Ber- Bernie did that, I, okay. and which is fine because he, I, I know they did more games. I thought that was cheap and out because we, we, we like to produce show. Right. I actually went there with a crew and it had features on, on, on players and everything. But, um, you know, uh, that was the first, believe it or not, the first local half-hour pregame show in America. Back then, this is how I tell people – you have, you have no recollection of how primitive things were. I'll to tell you, if I can digress for a moment. No, go ahead. Three major technological advances happened at the midst of my career when I was coming up. I started in, when I was 24 in 1974 on WABX. Okay, so that's FM radio. And you couldn't get it in your car unless you went to Mickey Shores and bought a converter and screwed it into your dashboard. Every car in America came with AM radio. That's it. It was my first car was a 74 Duster, cost 3100 bucks. It would have been another 150 to get an FM radio. 5% of the value of the car, can't afford a radio. So FM was kind of underground. Then this amazing transformation happened in 1977, I think it was, where the big three said, FM radios, standard equipment in every car, overnight. Right. The whole land, just like recently when the ticket went to FM, DFM had been on top, dead. Right. The next day they're dead. And so that's what it was like back then. So FM radio suddenly, and I'm now, I get hired by WRIF. So now the FM stations are the only ones that will play music. 
The next year, 1978, they created this porn pack where you could actually shoot videotape for a TV station and put it on that day. That didn't exist before 1978. You shot wow. film and it took to the next day. Or we shouldn't we can maybe get it on at night. So if Michigan played on Saturday afternoon, you may not see it until Sunday if the game ended late. So people forget what that was like. And then, as you alluded to earlier, ESPN started in 79 and satellites suddenly made more videotape available. So the guys that I came up behind, like Al Ackerman, became dinosaurs very quickly because they couldn't handle the fact that there's now there's all this all this videotape. So a lot it was just very, very different. So the other day, Saturday, after I knew that we were going to be doing the podcast, I was over at 15 Mile and Telegraph pumping gas, and I look over to my right, and who is uh, putting some gas in his um, BMW SUV LK line? <laughs> and I, I was, I was thinking of going up to him and telling him I was going to have you on the show and ask him for an antidote. Oh, you should said, have, you should have. I was have. like, you know what? I'm not going to bother the guy. <laughs> I, uh, I, I figured I wouldn't. What, but- what, what Al didn't like was that. On the radio on RIF, we had uh, 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 George Byer imitated him. Remember, he did George. Oh yeah, Str- yeah. And so Al was a little sensitive to that because you make fun of you make fun of the way Al talked third basemans and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, but what was it? I mean, two Hall of Famers, George Kell, Al Kaline. Uh, now you've got guys like Rod Allen who played 31 games, I think, in the major leagues uh, doing the games. Craig Monroe, who didn't exactly have a stellar career, right. but you were working with right. t- two absolute legends. Uh, what was that like uh, dealing with them on the broadcast? I was I was pretty still pretty new to television, um, uh, and Kaline and Kel were they were they were they were legends, and to be on the show with them and and have, and interview Sparky and all that was 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 a thrill. I'll tell you a little story about how that all happened if if I can go back a little bit. In uh, I started in, at WDIV in 1981, and. Um, this show began, the, the pregame show began in 82, and Don Shane was the star there. He was in front of me. I was an FM radio guy that they hired because I had a following on FM, and they, they wanted me to move into, into television. But he was, I was the number f- uh, three guy because he had Al was on the top, then Don, then me and Jim Branstetter was the uh, the field reporter, so to speak. So they have enough enough video coming in that we can now do a half hour pregame show. Nobody's done it before because we can actually get video from around the country and really make uh, until that it was this week in baseball with Mel Allen. That was all, all there was. And so DIV goes to Don and Don uh, was very busy. He's a couple years younger than me, but he had been in TV before and he taught me a lot. So we were friends and I was very thankful, grateful to him. Channel four asked him to do this half hour pregame show and he had too much going on. He had the final edition he had just brought from the Washington market, you know, the George Michael. And so he's doing that on Sunday night. He's doing channel. He's doing the the 530 news. And so he decides he doesn't want to do the show. And he's hoping that nobody else will do it because he knows he should do that show. They came to me and said, would you like to do it? And I said, wow, really? So that's kind of how that wasn't supposed to be. My show was supposed to be his show. Oh, wow. But it was remarkable that we could actually put together half an hour. So, yeah, we, I'd come up. I'd show the highlights of the night before, interview George and Al. It was, it was so cool. I would throw it to the ballpark. I mean, this is exciting stuff in TV back then. And they were, to answer your question, they were great to work with. The personality. In fact, I really feel that above Ernie Harwell, not that I'm not going to deny Ernie's greatness, George Kell was the voice of the Tigers. And I say that because 
he was a he said, "Won't somebody help Gibby?" When there was a <laughs> whereas Ernie just played it straight. And yeah. He came from New York and he 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 played it down the middle. He would get just as excited over a, a Baltimore Oriole hitting a homer as the Tigers was. George lived and, and 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 bled for him, and so that was very exciting. And Sparky, of course, was the one and only Sparky. What what's your best Sparky story? Ah, oh, there's so many of them. Um, I remember uh, there's a thousand, but I was just thinking this the other day. There's so many Hispanic players in baseball now, and Al Kaline says the Hispanics saved baseball because black kids don't play it anymore, right. and 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 the Hispanics played it. And so in eight, but and so in '84, I know Sparky always had a lot of um, uh, Hispanics and the Reds. He had. Um, Pedro Barbone, he had um, Dave, Concepcion. Uh, Dave Concepcion, who was the can't think of who the um, a bunch of them. Uh, who else? Anyway, um, so uh, the Tigers suddenly have a lot of Hispanic players. They got Juan Berenguer, and they got Barbaro Garbay came from Cuba on the Freedom Flotilla. Guillermo Hernandez. They got Guillermo Hernandez mm-hmm. Lopez. And I said, Sparky, how come you got all these Hispanic guys? I mean, it's it's, it's other teams only one or two. He says, Let me tell you something, Eli. Nobody never won nothing without at least two Chicos on the team. <laughs> so he was that on TV? <laughs> no, no, that was that was that, that was private. But uh, yeah, I don't think you get away with if they, that would be on Deadspin and awful announcing within right, about twenty seven right. seconds. And Spark- Sparky would be either gone or uh, Spar- right, right, exactly. Sparky, uh, Sparky knew what you wanted. He was very, uh, you know, the, he gave the media what they needed with the tacit understanding. That you're not going to nail him about anything, and I and I did protect Sparky, who ruined a lot of young players. He was really, really bad with young players. He admitted that he ruined Bobby Tolan in Cincinnati, and I and I saw what he did to some guys here. Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson. A, there was a kid named Nelson Simmons came up at the end of the year one year, uh, uh, poten- you know, big kid, potentially a great player. Sparky's thing was, I throw you out there and see if you're a man, and if you can take it, you stay. If not, whereas guys need to have, and so Simmons is. Totally ruined his confidence, and he never made it. So Sparky was really old school that way, and I think a little more nurturing might have made him a, a, a more successful manager. Was it Chris Bataro, the famous? Uh... Yeah. Well, yeah, right. And Chris Bataro, right, right. He's going to be in the league for for twenty years, and Kirk Gibbs is going to be the next Mickey Mantle. Rico Bronia was another yeah, one he compared uh, to Mickey Mantle. Right, I remember him? He, he was trying to be colorful. He appreciated it. And um, what's well, funny if you think about it now with the coaches, you've got. Osmus, Caldwell, uh, Blashill, who's pr- pretty much a clone of his of, the, of his predecessor, uh, Babcock. Uh, the only one that's any personality really is Stan Van Gundy, who kind of is a throwback. Mm-hmm. But back then, you had Fonts, Jacques Demers, oh, Chuck Sparky, Daly. Chuck. Th- those four personalities right. alone could fill broadcast. Right. I mean, right. It's just a different era. Right, and then you started getting into the Scotty Bowmans. I, I, Scotty Bowman, nobody blew my mind like Scotty Bowman. I, I've never seen you, – you, you ask him question A, and he, whatever he wanted to say, he'd say it no matter what your question was. It didn't matter. You, you, you'd say, didn't, did I ask him that? He would just right. go wherever he wanted to go and basically saying, I don't want to do this interview, but I'm going to talk for a few minutes, and then you can Bill Belichick, camera off. basically, yeah. which maybe yeah. there's something to that, I guess, if you think about it. But So let me ask you a question. So you kind of – 2011 was when the Pistons um, gig, I think, ended, right? So Yeah, Gores bought the team and they fired everybody. You're right. So for the last few years, you really haven't had a venue, uh, as you did for many right. years. Right. Is there anything that you know you wake up and you're like, man, I wanna, I I'm, I'm so pissed off about this. I wish I could go on the radio well, today and 
certainly when you see Ryan Lochte, when you see something happen, when you hear about something from somebody on the inside you'd like to talk about, I think, yeah, it would be great to have a venue today. But I would never – I don't see what there is I would want to do. When I started in FM radio, there was a need for that. When I was on, I was on the station called WJZZ, it was my first – Monday through Friday, I created fresh sports casts like two in the morning and two in the afternoon. And I would, I would, I would go to the, the Piston game the night before and I would interview Bob Lanier or whoever it was. And I'd drive home to my little hovel in Madison Heights and think, I'm going to listen to these interviews. I'm going to create some stories. And in the morning, I'm going to go on the radio. People are going to listen to this and they're going to tune in because they want to hear me. And the reason they did was there was nothing else. Now, Bob Page was around back then, one of your recent guests, but he was on JR, which kind of had a, a format that really didn't allow much. It was just little, little up. So I actually had was the only person in the city, in the entire city, who had a show that included interviews from last night. And like I said earlier, people didn't know what happened in the game. And so there was a real viability for it. So, so today... I mean, that's what I was good at. I would love to. I would love to do that. If there was a need for it, there's no need for it anymore. There's not a single role that I would like to fill. I did do sports talk radio twice. I was on DFN for a year, and then I did the show with Gibby and Gary, like which you is said. where I wanted to go next. Yeah, but but, but I but that's that was the of everything I've done, and I've done everything from short form to long form radio and TV. That's the toughest gig of all: keeping it interesting for four hours and having good topics. And the people that do it on their own, man. Tip my cap to them, you know. So, whether you like Mike Valeni or not, or any of these guys, the fact that they can go on the air and, and and keep talking for four hours is harder than you think. Right. So you so you go back. Your the TV stuff is kind of evaporating. You've got the locker room production, which was yours with Gibby and uh, um, Gary and Gary Danielson. So at some point, XYT. I guess it was probably Infinity back then, wanted to go after Stoney and Wojo, which was number one, number two, uh, 25 to 54 male demographic in the city. It was a juggernaut, and they wanted to challenge that program, and they go after it with you, Kirk Gibson, and Gary Danielson. Now, think about that for a second. You, who had a long career, mm-hmm. uh, very uh, popular in this town, uh, on television, the guy who is now the number one CBS football broadcaster, uh, color announcer, and, and was a Lion player. Kurt Gibson, who, if you, who most beloved Detroit Tigers over the last thirty who, years. Who, who, who in Michigan? Who that was born in Michigan, played for a team here, and was bigger than Kurt Gibson? Nobody. There's hardly anybody. I mean, Willie Horton's the only one that come close. There's nobody else. He's in a class of his own for somebody who was born here, lives here, and played here for all those years. He's the the, the biggest hometown hero you could ever have. Although he went through a lot of uh, uh, you know issues before he became the hometown hero, right. but and he left the hometown at some yeah. point, which didn't exactly thrill everyone. Well, so you're going to say why wasn't it an amazingly successful show? I'm going to yeah. tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. It was a very good show, and for the, for the support we had and the venue we were on, we did very, very well. We did it for three years. Would have stayed longer, but Gibby took the job under tram right. in 2003, I think it was. So DFM was the first station in. They started it in 1994. They had a 50,000-watt signal in the AM, and they were the original. They, it's, a, it's a business the, uh, uh, axiom. First one in wins. Coke was first. Pepsi came along. They fight, but it's the first one in is the one. So XYT wants to do this. They got a, a crappy signal in comparison 
much more – it just breaks up in a lot of places, a lot of holes and everything. Uh, and we said, well, why don't you go to FM? And they didn't. We said, why don't you make it what we are? Because you can't be like them. And our general manager, whose name I will spare you because I do like him, but Rich ne- but never <laughs> got it. Never got it. We'd say, why do you continually want to hire Stoney and Wojo? Why not create a different brand? It's about branding. So we had real jocks. Not that I was a real jock, but I hosted real jocks, real sports. Let's build something different that will compete and should win because we got guys that actually played the game. Of course, every day, Kirk and Garrett would say, you don't know what you're talking about because you didn't play the game. Well, okay. that's <laughs> So it was just, it just, it could have been. And then sure enough, as soon as, uh, as soon as they go to FM, then DFN dies. Right. So, so, you know, it just wasn't. Well, it, they had, they had a, the double whammy of both. They go to FM and that's when the Tigers got good. Mm-hmm. I think you guys had the Tiger broadcast rights. Um, Maybe. Back then, but the Tigers were terrible. I mean, it didn't really matter. Do well, we have them back then? Was on JR? To, they were on JR, and I, I'm not sure what year Maybe they, they went to uh, XYT, but, and then eventually yeah. 97-1. But, right. but yeah, the thing was that, and I wonder, I wonder how you mentioned it earlier, how hard it is to do a three- or four-hour show and fill content. And I think you guys were counter-programming. Stoney and Wojo would come on, and they would talk about Wojo eating Nutter Butters, or they'd talk about Stoney going to a Bruce Springsteen concert. And I think the counter-programming was – Okay, we got Gibby and Danielson on and me. We're going to do a sports show. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do a hardcore sports show while they're doing guy talk and mm-hmm. with some sports. Was it do you think that was we did, an we, impediment to it because now if you look at it, we don't even have a sports station in this town now basically. We don't your former station which went over to 971, the Faustian bargain that they made when they went from 1270 to 971 was well we can't talk about sports now all the time. And now if you listen to Scott Anderson and Doug Karsh, or even less with Valente and Foster, you, you, if you drop drop down from Mars and they someone told you this is a sports show, you'd be like, well, "Are you kidding me?" It, the, the, it's called guy talk. They do guy talk. It's based on sports, but you know, they. I think they. I don't think the percentage of guy talk to sports talk is all. I don't listen that much, but it seems like it's fairly well in proportion. But. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't. It wasn't I don't think something that's... that you wanted to do, though, was it? Not really. You know, we would occasionally veer, but but um, no. We we these guys, Kirk and Gary, had so much experience, were so knowledgeable on so many sports topics, could talk about it from a player's standpoint. They had great and, and by the way, um, twelve uh, ninety-seven one doesn't have any guests. That's part of their theory too. They they, they caller driven, no right. guests. There's three things: you got callers, you got guests. And you got talking amongst yourselves. So they eliminate one. They eliminate the, the, the guests. And I, I agree. If I'm listening to the Jim Rome show and, he, and he's got a defensive back from the Chargers on, I got no interest in that at all. Because it's going to be a bad interview about a team I don't, I don't care about. But I still, you know, I thought that interviews we did, because we had, we had, we got, we got, they, they, we, we got well, everybody turn down to. Kurt Gibson. Right. And, we'd have yeah. everybody from Bob Costas to, uh, it's so funny. One time, uh, at, um, one time we had on uh, Gil Brandt. Was the NFL scouting director? No, <clears throat> he was something to do with the. He formerly was the Cowboys general manager, and now right. he's the NFL scouting director. And so we had him on around the time of the of the combine. So we're talking to him, and um, he says, "You know, by the way, guy." And I got G- Gibby there, and I got Gary here. He says, "By the way, I got to tell you, since we started the combine in 1979, nobody has run a faster 40 than Kirk Gibson." And there's a silence, and Gibby's going. He's like laughing over the corner. 
And I go, wait a minute. Hold on a second, Gil. You're telling me that in the, the, the 35 years since there wasn't a single brother that ran faster than Kirk Gibson? Silence on the other end. And he goes, like I said, Kirk Gibson ran the fastest 40, which was like a 4.22 or something like that, which shows what, what a beast yeah. he was. Oh, he was yeah. an animal. I but mean, it, but the, the, the two of them knew a lot. I mean, we get every great college football coach on. We had everybody from – if, if Texas was the number one team, we get Mac Brown on. And Gary, go to games. He called. We, we had, I think, a really, really good show. That got good ratings consider, considering the lack of support right. that we had. Do you ever re- look back? Like I think, I think Stoney and Wojo and some of the other people at DFN say – you know, we told them go, to go to 106.7. If we were, you know, DFM would still be number one. Maybe there wouldn't even be a 97.1 a ticket. Right. If we, if they, do you ever look back and say, listen, if they would have taken our advice, I might still be on. Not doing- really, not really. It was a, it was, it was a tough show. And Gibby was bound to, was bound to go somewhere. I mean, he wanted right. to manage. He wanted to manage. He he retired in in '93, when the uh, and then he then he came back here and played from '93 to '95. John McHale was the general manager, and he wrote him a letter because Sparky's last year was 95, and he refused to right. coach the um, replacement players. Yeah. That, that never happened. And Gibby never got an answer from McHale, and it really pissed him off because he should have at least gotten – well, Kirk, we're not interested at this time. So it really, really made him angry. So he wanted to manage, and he would have done that eventually, and he took the next best thing when, they, um, when he got to do the uh, – uh, Bench coach for Tram. Oh, bench coach, and then and then he became uh, the, uh, the the Fox guy. Right. I'll tell you a little story, and and, I, and don't get me wrong, I really like Rod Allen, but um, and and I, and I don't you're know, not going to offend me by ripping on Rod Allen. No, no, I'm not going to rip on. I'm not going to rip on Rod Allen. I, I I could, but I'm not going to because it's only my personal. Uh, I I I get into the quirks, the repetitive things, the phrases people have on the air, and it, and it drives me crazy. That's only because I'm 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 like that way. But anyway, so. I write a I write a book on the uh, on the '84 Tigers and it's 2004, and I bring it to the fantasy camp down in Florida, which my friend Jerry Lewis runs. And so Jack Morris came for the first time that year, and I'm sitting in the back of the room. They all the campers are there the first night. There's a 200 of them in there, and 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 I'm in the back with Jack. We're catching up on old times. He was right in my ear, and I I love Jack. I've you know covered him for all those years. And so Jerry says, I'm going to introduce the um, the new broadcast team. Uh, Mario and Pemba is coming. Maybe it might have been Josh Lewin at the time. Mario and Pemba and our new color commentator Rod Allen. So back in the in the back of the room with Jack and Jack goes, "Who's he?" <laughs> oh, excuse me, Jack. That's Rod Allen. He goes, "Who's Rod Allen?" And I said, "You played with Rod Allen." He goes, "Really? For eight games? Really? I didn't know that." No. He's, <laughs> and so I said, "He said I don't remember him." Now Jack had very tunnel vision, and '84 was a very intense year for him. He started ten and one. Then he got hurt and didn't talk to his teammates or the press or the coaches for like a three-month period that year in oh, 1984. Wow. He hurt his elbow in Toronto. By the end of the year, he finally came around. So I said, Jack, uh, he play, He was the DH when you pitched your no-hitter. He goes, oh, okay. It's, it's kind of interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know he was a DH then. He was. He was. Oh, wow. Yeah, Rod, Rod, Rod played 31 games. 31, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not many at-bats. And yeah. when they brought, up, uh, they brought up Rupert Jones. On May fifth, rooftop, yeah. who was who was the lefty instead of the righty? And I said, Sparky, why? I mean, Ron Allen could hit. Get it? He says, some trouble with the leather. He says, he's shaking his, shaking his little, <laughs> little trouble with the leather. Oh. But um, well, that that leads into a question about the treatment of the '84 Tigers by the Illiches. And I wonder what your opinion on that is. As we sit here, Gibby is doing the Fox Sports Detroit broadcast. 
uh, which I'm, I'm kind of surprised about that they even brought him back because of the animosity that it appears from the outside. Trammell and Whitaker still don't have their jerseys retired, which to me just absolutely is baffling. I, I don't give a shit what writers in, on the East Coast think about their Hall of Fame credentials. You're never going to convince me that Ozzie Smith was better than Trammell, and you're never going to convince me that Whitaker wasn't one of the top 10 or 12 second basemen in the history mm-hmm. of, the base, of, of the game, whether or not people in New York or, or Boston or Philadelphia see it. I think those numbers should be retired. They didn't honor – they didn't retire Sparky's number until the summer after he died. And I was just wondering, as someone who's so ensconced and tight with the 84 team, what's your opinion of all that and why do you think it is? Is it – does it all go back to that? Not the replacement players. So you, you want them to? I mean, put their number on the wall out there. Is I think there, I think there's no doubt in my mind that Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell's number well, should I, be retired. Oh, I see, retired. Okay, well, me and Kinsler right. is wearing number three, and that's right. I mean, they're not retired, and it's just insane to me. You think that you think that's you think that's more of an outrage than the Pistons uh, retiring Rip Hamilton's number? Well, that, that's that's the other side of the coin. Exactly, I mean, that's we, the exact opposite. The, the Pistons have retired. And we're going to get into the Pistons next. Oh. The Pistons have re- retired Kid Rock and Bob Seger's number and Eddie Money. I mean, they'll retire. I mean, they'll retire anybody's number. I don't, and the Tigers yeah. still have not honored two of the great, not just two of the best to ever play their position. They did it for three decades in this town together, and it just it just it's well, just insane to me why they're not. Who's retired. number? Okay, Geringer's number two is retired. K line. K line. Horton. Horton's twenty three is retired. Okay. Um, well, he's got he's got a statue too. Anybody else? Uh, else well, Cobb t- didn't have a number, right? Right, so, right. I mean, he's, they, but he's, it's. I mean, they got Heine Manouche out there and guys like that. But um, you know, certainly in the pantheon of Tigers in the last fifty years, you'd think that they they would. I don't know the reason why they haven't. They're always just, just there's just something. It's always been something odd between Illich's relationship with that team, and I just don't know what. Well, it you is. know, Mon- it was Monahan's team back then. Um, right. I don't know. Illich is a fan. He's always been a fan. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe nobody's just pushed for it inside the organization. I uh, guess. Well, they got some – the rule, they, everyone, whenever anyone answers is, well, you've got to be in the Hall of Fame, I yeah. guess. And just like I said, I don't know why you would determine that. So let's go to the Pistons. Okay. Who, uh, <laughs> they haven't retired your number yet, but if, they, if, if, if there's a Philadelphia on a weekday and they only have 12,000, maybe they will. <laughs> but uh, So you work with the Pistons F- yeah. from 2005 to 2011. I guess my first question would be – Making the transition to working for a team, right, as right. opposed to being an independent member. Right. I basically, I basically became a PR man in a sense, but I felt there was a way. I, I was intrigued at that point in my life to have a chance to travel with a team and see what it's like. And I, they wanted me to do some creative things, be a sideline reporter. I helped them with their website. I created stories on the players, and it was and it was it, it was interesting for a while because they were good. 2006, my first year, they were 2006, 7, and 8, they were good. What really revealed to me um, just the mentality of players and the dysfunction of the league was when they turned into a bad team. And the stuff I saw for two or three years there was just shocking to me. I mean, you mentioned Philadelphia. There was a time in Philadelphia, I think it was two, was it 2010, where the players boycotted a practice. What had happened was— it was the second year. So I think it was my last year. So it was probably the 10-11 season. And uh, Cuse, the players hated Custer. You know, the whole, the whole thing de- – okay, let's go back. The whole thing really devolved when they traded for Iverson. So they took a popular guy, Chauncey Billups, that fed him the ball. You know, the difference between men, men's basketball and women's basketball. Women, they, they, they want to like each other. Men don't care. Just 
give me the ball. And so Chauncey was the guy who was the glue on the team. So Joe, in his, in his forward thinking, felt that instead of having to get bad to get good, which is what he tried to do with Grant Hill, which is the, the theory is you got to get really bad to get good because you get the cap, you get the top pick and all that. So he thought they could stay good by, by, because in 2008, they, they made it to the finals again, but he could see that Chauncey wasn't what he was and he felt that the team was devolving, but he could get another year out of it by getting Iverson for Chauncey and then get the money from Iverson's $21 million contract. Right. Well, what he didn't realize was the effect it would have getting rid of Billups and what an incredible dysfunctional cancer Iverson became the minute he got there. Now, they made fun of me, Blaha, and them, because I was excited. We had a dead team, team that couldn't win anymore, and we get this, this little icon. And so he's much bigger than any, much even maybe bigger than Isaiah in his day. This guy is an international famous player, and here he is, and I get to talk to him every day to fill in some of the blanks over this crappy team that I got to cover. But Iverson was already on the way down, and I didn't realize that he was a, he was a, a gambling addict and an alcoholic and had no vision of where his life and career was. It was so, he was so blind to reality that I, I used to think he's doing the exact opposite of what any sane human being would do. A sane human being with five kids and um, uh, uh, in the last year of his contract, he's 34. He's not in good shape because he's drinking every night and going to the casino. He's got to know the end is near. Wouldn't you think you'd kind of save your money? So I'd think you're making $21 million, Give the government seven. You're going to keep your 14 Live on a million. Put the other 12 13 away. You're good. Right. No. Every week you got that check for $454,000 and pissed it away. Just threw it away. At the same time, you got people coming from all over the world, Make-A-Wish kids, to meet Allen Iverson. Kid flew in from Tokyo 24 hours to meet Allen Iverson. There was this excitement about him. And I'm saying, here's this guy that doesn't see his kids, doesn't want to see his kids, doesn't care about his wife. He's got him down in Atlanta in a mansion there. He's throwing away his money every night. He, he's a disaster. Plus, he didn't understand. I would look at him and say, he doesn't even know what it means to be a teammate. It, it, because his whole career was built around he's the star of the team. And Larry Brown almost got a championship out of it. Right. But with Iverson, I'm the, I'm the offense, I'm everything, and these are just players to be around me. When his, when his skills started to erode, he didn't know what to do. He could only see himself as Allen Iverson, the star. And he wasn't. And the minute they got him, Rip Hamilton went into the tank and became the most disf- – I, I would say to Joe Dumars, I'd say, Hamilton just – He's so pissed off that he's not playing that you got this this Iverson who can't play anymore. He's dribbling under the basket. He's got nobody. To, he, he can't get to the hoop anymore. He's got to throw it out to the to the field. What are you thinking? Why did you even bring him here? And Joe said, "Well, I hope that he get you know he played hard the last year of his career." I said, "He can't. He's an alcoholic and he's never sleeps. So right. how could he? How could he? So this whole thing devolved into this ugly thing. And Iverson had no concept of how to be a teammate. Now, in contrast, the next year Tracy McGrady came, same age, same stage of his career. Tracy got it, though. He said, you know, if I'm going to survive and get another contract, I better help the coach. I better talk to the young players and be kind of a mentor and be a good teammate. Iverson had no concept how to do that. And it was it was tragic. And sure enough, he's broke the next year. He can't he can't he can't pay his alimony. It was an ugly situation to, to see it devolve like that was just and it didn't have to. So so you're thinking here's this great player. 
and and a nice enough kid Iverson was. I mean, I got no no problem. But he he just had no idea who he was, where he was, or, or what he should be doing. Yeah, I get reports that he was at the casino and he'd throw the cards at the dealer. And I mean, it was I mean, some he was ugly drunk. stuff. Weren't yeah, we drunk. supposed to get him years ago? But like Matt Geiger yeah. mixed the yeah. trade. Something like right. that. What was like, that? I don't remember who right. we were supposed to deal right. for him. But that well, years ago, that was back in '03, I think. Well, that's yeah. the ironic thing about Joe was. Joe, as you said, thought, okay, we get, you know, we lo- we're losing um, Grand Hill, trading for some guy named Ben Wallace, right. thinking we're going to be bad. And then the exact opposite occurred, he, where he, they, where Ben became. He got lucky because right. he wanted Grant to take the money. If right. Grant Hill had taken the money, there would have been no 2004 for championship. No, because Grant was injured in that last playoff series, and he right. never really recovered fully. I mean, he came back and he was kind of a six man type deal, but. So Joe thought we were going to tank. They ended up being good. When right. he gets Ivers and he thinks we're going to be, you know, right. be good, and instead they went into an, a, a, a downward yeah. spiral, which they just in the last year really have and, come and out. So, of. And so the team sees since Iverson was so um, uh, upset about being asked to sit the bench, he said, "No, I'm not going to sit the bench." No. So we were in Miami one night um, in the winter in 2009. That was the last year they made the playoffs, and Iverson skids into the. Um, the, the, the basket support in Miami and kind of wrenches us back a little bit. And he's going to, he's going to have to sit out the next game. And we flew from Miami to New Orleans that night. And so, you know, it's oh, after the game. I mean, I'm so tired. I don't know how these players are tired. It's, it's midnight. You've been on a plane flight. You land in New Orleans, you get on the bus. You're like, I'm thinking, I just, I, I got to get to bed. And so they, they, you know, the, the security guy goes on the, the, the PA and the bus. He goes, guys, it's, it's pouring rain. It's the last night of Mardi Gras. It's like early February. It's freezing, you know. And and he said, "I just please let's just go to our rooms, shoot around. Bus leaves at nine in the morning, and I, I just urge you all to go to bed. Don't go to Harris." So the next morning, <laughs> we go to the bus, and I see the security guys like slumping, <laughs> slumping on on the curb, and I go, "Don't tell me he went to the casinos." Yeah. It's just another typical night. It gets to be four or five in the morning. Is it too much to drink? Ugh. You know, there's there's sixty thousand dollars on the table, whatever. And guys are getting testy. And you know, he thinks guys maybe reaching on the table. You know, so before before bad stuff happens, he pulls Iverson out of there. But this went on every night, and it was just really. I say, what what is going on with this team with with these players? And 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 so another guy, another great piston, who I actually liked really like was Rashid Wallace. But Rashid, so this was further to the end of 2000, the last year they made the playoffs, okay? So they they um, uh, they they could finish seventh if they won one of their last two games. So it's in San Antonio. They're going to fly to Jersey to end the season. They know they're not going to win in San Antonio, but they right. can beat the Nets. We're very beatable at the time. And if they beat the Nets, they play the Bulls as the 2-7 matchup instead of the Cavaliers 1-8 with LeBron James, they're going to get swept. Right. So Rashid has got 15 technical fouls on the year. And so it's third a quarter in San Antonio. They're down by 10. It was a close game, but the Spurs are starting to pull away, and Rashid's arguing a call. So on the bench, you're going, you know, Michael Curry, no, 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 no. <laughs> Rashid looks to the bench, and he knows what they're saying. And he kind of goes back, continues to argue with the referee, gets the tee, and everybody on the bench goes, oh. So, she, so, so we know he's not going to play in Jersey. Uh, I'm thinking, what an idiot. I can't believe he did this. So I'm sitting next to a lady in, in the fancy seats in the front there, and she's got a cocktail, and she's obviously somebody's guest. And so I'm frustrated. I go, you know, because I, I, and I, I say to her, you know, you know what that foul will cost him? 
I said, what do you mean with that foul costume? I said, what do you think it cost him? She said, I don't know. What did it cost him? I said, it cost him $147,000. He goes, what do you mean? How could that be? I said, I'll tell you why. Because he gets made $13.1 million divided by 82 games is $147,000 a game. So he can't play tomorrow, and that's what it cost him. And I said, you know what else? She goes, what? He says, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and he literally didn't oh. care. And so on the plane going back that night, I walk by Joe and I go, just tell me what your thoughts are. And he looks at me and he says, total betrayal. So this is what you had back then. Not Joe's fault. He did the best he could. He got Rasheed Wallace. But this is what this is what happens when the players make more than the coach, more than the general manager, and they got long-term contracts. You hope that they're good citizens, and some are. I don't want to paint them all that way. There are some great players I met in the NBA who worked their butts off and, and, and appreciated where they were. And there were others that had great talent that just... And that's why I was fully for Stan Van Gundy getting hired as the, as the GM the president of the team, and the coach, because we right. went through five years of this. Right. Where, okay, it, I'm not sure Van Gundy's the best executive or the guy he's going to bring in his puppet is going to be the best executive, but at right. the very right. least, right. guys aren't going to boycott a shoot-around because they know the guy who's their coach also can send him out of, right. out, out of town. And I think it was almost a necessity with this team. It was so toxic for those few years that they had to hire a guy like Van Gundy and give him complete uh, control. Saunders was a good coach, but the players walked all over him, and he clashed with Ben Wallace, who thought he should shoot more. Saunders was right. He shouldn't have shot at all. But um, uh, Have you seen Joe? I I don't know. That's like the most underreported story, I think, in this town. Where is Joe? Nobody's heard from Joe in, in like two or three years. Very, it, it was. He kind of ended up in a bit of a humiliating situation there. You know, he was. Uh, he he got many many years of a of a free pass, but he just made so many mistakes. I mean, the whole you know he got the, and it, he had some bad luck. He got the money from the Iverson thing. He had twenty one million, but there was nobody on the market. He got right. Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon, who, who who pissed Hamilton off further because now he gets rid of Iverson and they bring in Ben Gordon who who shoves Rip to the bench and so Rip became this disruptive force who who would who would call who would, who would rip on Kuster in front of the team I'd say Joe in any business in America if you go up to the boss and tell him he's a piece of crap in front of the whole team and he's a fraud and shouldn't be in the league isn't there some retribution and he just looked at me because what's he going to do He's got yeah. a guaranteed contract and he makes twelve point six million. So there was this and, and, and Daryl Walker said it best. Daryl Walker said, I've never seen this level of disrespect anywhere in my career in sports. So it was yeah, it, it was, was interesting. It was very it was interesting. such an odd era because you went from the championship years where I don't think they, they completely listened to Larry Brown, even when they were winning. I mean and we know what you know. Carlisle ended up winning Coach of the Year one year, and the next year he he was gone. Um, but how much when you how much of the uh, blame do you lay? Because you were there during this time. Bill Davidson passes, and you know right before he dies, there's an article in the Free Press. Mitch Album had interviewed him. This is the secession plan. This is what I want. Karen's right. going to do this, this, and this. This is the plan. In the minute Bill goes, Karen. Selling houses in Colorado, you know, liquidating the whole thing, and puts the Pistons on the market. Well, and 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 and, yeah. and, 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 and if you listen to Joe, yeah. Joe says, "Well, my hands were tied." They were, they were. In fact, in fact, I'll tell you what happened. 
Uh, and I, I give Joe, Joe had was an unwinnable situation right there. So all star break in 2011. Um, Joe tells the players because the players said we can't play for Custer anymore. He said, look, after the all star break, we'll make a change. I forget whether he said he put Daryl in there or whoever else was. And he was going to do it. It was the right thing to do. And the players were happy with that. Well, over the All-Star break, Karen says, no, I'm not going to promote an assistant coach and have to go pay him from 400000 to a million or something. I'm not going to throw an extra half a million or a million dollars on the table so you can finish the season. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Kuster's going to run it out. And so here Joe, in good faith, because he's the general manager, should be able to make these decisions, was told, no, you can't do it. So the players come back from the All-Star break, and Kuster is still there. And we're saying, oh, boy, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So they play Indiana, first game back. Wallace was hurt. He didn't play that game. He had come back that year after being away for three years. And we take the plane flight to Indianapolis where they're going to play the next day. No, yeah, no, no. We're, they played in Indianapolis. We're, we fly from Detroit to Indianapolis, Okay. And uh, we're going to go to Philadelphia next. And on the flight to Indianapolis, Ben takes Kelser into the back of the plane and says, you got to go on the air and say that this is bullshit, that we got to get rid of this coach. And Greg goes, are you kidding me? I've been doing this for 23 yeah. years. That's exactly and, Greg Kelser's personality. But, you know, no, he's like, I'm not, not going to do that. You know? and, so, and, so, and, so then, and so then we get to the lobby in Indianapolis. And Rip comes up to me and he goes, Eli, Eli, you got to go on. You got to say, you got to go on the air and say this. I go, Rip, what, well, come on now. Are you out of your mind? I'll give you the microphone. You can say it. You got the balls to say it. Go right ahead. I'm not going to say that. And then he says, how much money do you make? I go, why? So I'll give you your, your year's salary if you do it. I go, no, I'm not going to do it. Wow. That's how upset they were. So then, of course, they get to Philadelphia after Indianapolis, and that's when they do the boycott. So they're wow. actually going to say, here, here I'm making – $12, $13 million a year, and because I don't like the boss that they give me, I'm not going to play? I'm not going to play that day? Think of it. What other, what other business could this ever happen in? It's abs- think, think of how, you know, <laughs> how thrilling it would be to be in the league and make that kind of money, what a privilege it is, but I'm not happy with the coach. I'm not going to play today. It's it was incomprehensible. And the funny thing is, if this was New York or Philadelphia, I think it would have complete, really tarnished a lot of the shine from some of the guys that were on the 2004 team. But because the media was basically so in the in, in, in Joe's pocket, none of this stuff really came out. I mean, well, Goodwill and Ellis, they weren't reporting this stuff. No, no, no. They but, weren't doing it. But and then we find this. out that Joe Joe is 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 giving secret league memos. To Adrian Wojnarowski, who at the time was, I guess, at Yahoo, you know, it was at Yahoo. It comes out later that the guy who is the name, who's the basically Lady Bing, the yeah. person who's the the, the uh, leadership or whatever integrity award, was leaking secret league memos to a reporter, and it only yeah. got found out in a sting. The NBA had to run a sting operation, and it turns out that Joe, their most beloved. Player executive was the one that was well, doing it, and then did, when did that get reported by anyone really in this town? I'm not going to justify that he was undermined in so many ways. But look at this: so Rashid is guilty of total betrayal, and by the way, they lost the game the next night in Jersey by a close game where he could have helped, and they get swept. And so, but in Joe, two games basically, but Joe, but, but, right, but Joe <laughs> hires Rashid to be an assistant coach years later. Yeah. Rip Hamilton, who was the most um, 
disruptive. Um, uh, 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 he killed all whatever whatever esprit de corps there was. He he went out of his way to destroy. They're going to retire his number. So no matter what you do, no matter how bad you act, no matter how uh, you're a bad team player, nothing happens to you. No. <laughs> and the funny thing was that Karen was so anxious to sell the team, she ends up getting ripped off by Tim. I mean, Tom, Tom Gores, I think, bought the entire, the, the Palace, the Pistons, DTE, Meadowbrook, the whole thing. 305. $305 million. probably worth a billion now. And I think the Bucks sold like a year yeah. later or a year and a half yeah. later, Herb Cole, Senator, I think he sold the Bucks yeah. for 600 and something. Yeah, and you're right. They're probably worth between 800 and a billion now. Right. Right, because she couldn't wait. It, 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 and 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 really, the other part of the thing when you were there, that kind of was underreported. The Pistons were getting the, to the ECF every single season right. for those first right. few years, and I think Bill Davidson refused to go over the luxury tax at that point. And it seems like they were always one player away tweaking it during those years yeah. to maybe get that second title. But Bill, yeah, well, you know, wouldn't Bill, do it. Bill, Bill, um, after after '05. There was a little problem with Larry Brown, I guess. You know, Larry Larry is Larry. And Larry talked about, you know, there was a rumor he's going to be, go to Indiana. Larry was that way. He's, he's always hit, He always was wanting to move. But Larry is the one that – now, and Joe worked hard on the Rasheed Wallace deal. The only reason they got Rasheed was Larry bothered him every day. We need this guy. You want to win. We have to have him. And so Joe, to his credit, made like an 11-player deal. It took him months to do. But I don't think he would have done it if Larry hadn't pushed. And so what do they do? They fire Larry Brown because he looked at somebody the wrong way. Not Carly looked at somebody the wrong way in the hallway. But Davidson fired him for – he was a great coach. He won a championship for you. And he got you to game seven of the next year. They would have won again if not for the the Robert Horry thing. And so you, you fire that guy and bring in Flip Saunders? What are you thinking? And so you know, Joe, Joe, Joe was whatever he yeah. he made some bad choice, but he also was cornered a few times. Yeah, no, it's a weird, <laughs> it's, it's just a weird dyna- da- dynamic. I still love Joe. Uh, go, I do you too. Can't, you can't grow up in this town being my age. The guy brought us two championships as a player, mm-hmm. brought us another championship, the only team really in NBA history that didn't have a superstar that's won a, a championship. So I, it's just such a strange and and, and very very few moves can make huge differences. The Darko thing was a huge mistake, obviously. That cost him for a long time. But you could make the case that if they get Carmelo, to me, if they get Carmelo, they don't trade for Rashid that year, and Carmelo and Larry Possibly. Brown couldn't get along in the Olympics. So could Possibly. They, so could right. they have got along? I, I, I think that would have been his, I don't think the Pistons, if they drafted Carmelo, ever won a championship. As, as horrible as that pick was in retrospect, I'm not sure they ever get a ring from that era. Yeah. If because if because because you're not going to get Rasheed if you have Carmelo and Carmelo's a rookie in that team, I, I think it would, it would have been a disaster waiting to happen with him. He had some bad breaks too. Like I said, having to get Villain away. These were these were an undersized Ben Gordon who had a great playoffs. He had a great playoffs with yeah. the Bulls, but that was that was and 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 Villain away was just you know. I, I can't. I can't say what Kelvin Sampson said about him. He was, he was an assistant coach for the Bucks, and we asked him this season, um, "What do you think of Villanueva?" And he said, um, "Charlie likes two things. He likes to chase. You know what? And he likes to count his money. Other than that, he's not really engaged." <laughs> and that was that's a pretty apt description. I think before he ever played a game, he had a, there was a domestic dispute issue that was in the in Toronto or something, right. but. But though it was fun. I enjoyed doing it, and I and actually ended at the right time because I couldn't really 
say nice things about a team that that was so dysfunctional and didn't play hard and just showed just bad character in many, many ways. I, I would have a conversation with Rodney Stuckey's mother and say, you know, he's like um, uh, being disruptive to the coach. He's not going into a game. I said, let rip. Let Ben do that. He's he's a second year. Don't don't and right you know and so there was a, just a lot of a lot right. of bad attitudes. Don't, and don't lot, make that your yeah right. You're, you're you're too young. Get your money first before yeah. you, you screw around like that. But, so the last topic I kind of want to hit on is uh, your relationship with Denny McLean because you did a radio show with him. You wrote a book mm-hmm. uh, with him, and I'm just curious with everything that's gone on in his life up until recently. I mean, he was I saw him last week. Yeah. Rob Wolchek was going after him. On I, a, somebody tipped me. Did you tip me? Somebody tipped me off about that that he was going to be on that night, and I looked at it. It was just and I, I, as I'm watching that the Rob Wolchek thing because he's got a steel company, he's not paying guys, and they own. I mean, the same story over and over again. Uh, I, I'll go back to the beginning. Um, I never laughed harder or had more fun working with anybody. I mean, I love Gibby and Gary, but it was hard working with them because they're both powerful personalities and they were very demanding. But Denny was just fun to be with. And he remade his life. He, he got a big break out of jail in 1985 and built a great little radio career. I had no idea was that he was that, you know, he was that cool. He was, he was fun to be with. Great sense of humor. Never laughed as hard with anybody as he was funny as could be. And um, uh, they asked me at Channel 2. They said, uh, he's doing really well on XYT. You want to do a show? I said, sure, I'd love to do this. I got together the, the first night. I said, look, um, if I make fun of you, like, cause you know, you left Mickey Lolich at the airport, you're gonna go. he said, look, you're not smart enough to, you know, to get under my skin. Anything goes. It's all about entertainment. And, and, and that was great. I think we had the first real studio talk show in the Detroit market. Right. And he was fun to work with. And then, um, his daughter died in that horrific car accident and he just, every demon, and he is a sociopath in many ways, any demon that he had came out. And uh, it was absurd. I just watched a man fall apart. He bought the, the company in, 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 in um, uh, peat packing and, and chesening. Yeah. What are you doing? Why would you do that? It's got nothing to do with what you do. you got a radio and TV show. Why are you doing this? And he did. He just went insane. And it was, and it was tragic. And um, I got caught up in it too. I lent him $50,000 and he paid me back from the wrong pile. And it cost me $37,000 to defend myself because oh, I didn't geez. want to. It was really sad. It was just really, really sad. And then he went to jail again and, 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 and got out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to make a His wife is very sick now. Sharon McLean has got Parkinson's, and it's really, Jeez. really sad. Denny, uh, you know, he's, he's – it's just – it's a tragedy. I still love the guy. I talked to him from time to time. But um, he, he hurts himself about, th- about three years ago. I did a bunch of uh, appearances with Dave Bergman before he died, uh, the late Dave Bergman. And we raised money for the Joe Negro Foundation you know, and, and various other uh, ch- uh, charities. And we would go to like the Motor City Casino and I'd get some 84 Tigers here and some 68 Tigers here. We'd have a lot of fun, ask a lot of questions. Denny hosted one one year. They let him back in because he was going to benefit the military. This is like three years ago in December. So what does he do? He doesn't pay K-Line. He doesn't. They, they were all going to give him another chance, and he uh-huh. did the same thing again. Always blaming it on somebody else. Right. And I didn't leave that night till I got my check because I knew I wouldn't get it otherwise. And so he could have done so well, even just signing autographs around here. But he's burned every bridge. You know, I, 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 he says, uh, "I'd like to bring you to the Tiger Alumni Golf Hour that I host." I say, "Can I bring Denny?" No, if you bring him, a lot of guys won't show up. So it's really sad. He's his own worst enemy. 
and he's in his 70s now, and to watch him be humiliated on Channel 2 like that it the was other hard day to watch. was really hard to watch. As someone who's been critical of At the station where he had such great success, and now yeah. he's this subject of derision, and it's just really, really sad. And I'm not even sure it was even airworthy. It was just so pathetic, and I've been a critic of his for many years. As a matter of fact, when I was down at U Detroit Cafe a few years ago doing a show, the guys, he was doing one down there too, and they wanted me to be on opening day with him down there broadcasting from from the studio live out there. And I was like, I, I just don't have any association with the guy. This was after Pete and all yeah. that stuff. And um, But, God, after all of this time has gone by and the guy's that old, and if anyone else had wasn't paying – I mean, there's a lot of companies that are, that struggle and maybe they have a hard time paying the bills. Anything else. Rob Wolchuk's not sticking right, a microphone right, out there. Right. And, but, and for what, like a thousand? The he yeah, owes me a thousand bucks. Yeah. Is that really news? Shame it on was, you, you know what? too. It You're was, calling that news? Give me a break. It was pathetic. It was just. I, it yeah. was literally hard to watch. And that's someone who lost all respect for yeah. the man many years ago. But You know, I, and, I, and I'll say another thing about Denny. I, um, I was at many, many events. We wrote the book. We did a tour of minor league uh, ballparks in 2006 or seven. I've never seen any – and Dave Roseman was in this class, just great with fans. They'll indulge the fans. They'll answer questions. Denny would be with – I said, so, Denny, come on, just give him a cut sign. This guy's just hanging on. He's you know, going over the same stuff. He's bothering you. But he would, he would, he would suffer the fans. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's really his main way of making money now. He's still the last living 31-game winner, 30-game winner. Right. Uh, it hasn't happened since 1937, I think. He'll be the it'll last probably, It'll never happen again. No, and, and uh, he was a great competitor. Um, cut short by uh, – if, if, if they had arthroscopic surgery, he could have pitched another 10 years. But um, you ought to read the book. It's pretty pretty entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> well, the guy is – I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Great storyteller. That's how he's been able to ingratiate himself with yeah. people is because the guy is fun and yeah. the guy is – is. I mean, that's a, it's a long con, obviously, at some point. It, right. But right. He, he was entertaining. I used to listen to that show on XYT uh, in the mornings back when you guys uh-huh. were on. It, oh, good. You're a liberal. Oh, am I a liberal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Yes, I am. You're a liberal atheist, man. You're my kind of guy. Atheist. I love That's, you. Yeah, <laughs> that, that that would be my uh, my my mo. So I'll, I find I, you. I find you totally likable. What's what's wrong with the rest of the public out here? Well, why are you so despised? You seem like a really regular guy. Ask good questions. It didn't ask me anything to put me on the spot. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, you know, Jessica or, probably could answer that question better than me. I'm not getting involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a controversial figure for you right now. I get it. No, I, yeah. And I'm not in the news Yeah, day. look, back, I'm sure that I ripped on you back in 2003 <laughs> at some point when you said something stupid about the Tigers or something. But right, right, no, it, right. it, I think the thing with me is the, the reason people have a problem with me is I don't think there's anyone else doing what I do in the market at this point. Well, I think, I, I think Valenti is hated. Because, be, well, listen, Valenti's a, I, I think Valenti's a star. And I'm going to tell you, I think he's the best. Uh, uh, whether you, the reason I say he's the best is because people love him or hate him, right? And he 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 he, he arouses emotions in people. He 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 gets a reaction. He's very uh, engaged, and he'll say anything. And he hates everything because, and that's good because he's constantly tortured. He and 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 this is this is the angst that sports fans have. 
Every team except for one loses in every sport every year. Nobody's ever happy in the end. Very, very rarely. The Tigers have had a great run the last 10 years. Everybody's frustrated and unhappy. They've been, you know, it's like the, the Buffalo Bills made four straight Super Bowls. It's just an era of us angst and anger and frustration. So right. he expresses We just wanted that. one, though. One. He expresses that. And, and I say to people, I say, in other words, if the Lions win, it is, you've, you've suffered with them for 50 years. They've given you crap for 50 years. And so, in other words, if they win, then it's all okay. That's been my point. That's why I gave up on them, and I just I can't root for them until uh, your friend Bill Keenest and and the <laughs> Ford family are out of it. Because it's I, and my my uh, what I, my point has always been over the, since basically Barry left and quit on the team because he couldn't take the losing of William Clay Ford Senior anymore. It was like okay, so this te- imagine if you were married. Uh, let's just say you're a woman and you're married to a man who's beat you, and you know. Cheated on he you. He keeps on promising he's going to change. He's going to yeah, promise you to it's change. It's the same thing every year, though. And, and and on your 50th anniversary, he buys you a new Lexus SUV. Bring, fly, I mean, is, so everything was okay for the previous 40 years? At some point, you know, all the other teams have won a championship. They've given us some joy. At mm-hmm. some point, don't, isn't there a tipping point right. where even if you do win, all of the suffering before it has rendered it meaningless. And that's where I got that's that's the point I got to with the Lions basically when they hired uh, uh Bobby Ross and he ran up Barry Sanders off and the one joy we had in all these years was Barry Sanders. And I don't know so much that he ran him off. I just think Barry's a very strange guy and uh good guy, strange guy. Though remember his rookie year, he didn't want the the rushing title that year. Right. Left the Christian game in the middle. He yep. let, left the game. And he didn't want to the attention of passing Walter Payton. I, I think that's part of it, too. He was a man in the spotlight who hated the spotlight, did the best he could with it. And, I, you know, I, I, thought, I thought the public, he handled it poorly. He shouldn't have done it right away and, and, and left the country. But that's Barry. He was a quirky, a quirky guy. But, you know, when you get your ass kicked for 10 years where, where 280-pound linemen are trying to crush you in every play, isn't that enough? You got to be out there an eleventh year, like a boxer. He's taking all this abuse. Oh well, you know you shouldn't retire now. Why are you retire? He has a right to retire. He had a right to retire. He didn't handle it well. But calling him, you know, like being angry with him, I thought was I thought people went well, I, too far. Well, that was insane. I to me, you have an organization that has had no success at all. You had an owner who, as general manager, was his drinking buddy for many years, <laughs> and then. After that person left, it was his accountant. Um, right. Chuck Schmidt. You're talking right. Russ Thomas to Chuck Schmidt. Well, yeah, Russ Thomas to Chuck Schmidt. And I take Barry's words from his book and basically what he said at face value, that he was sick of the losing. And I would agree to you to a certain extent if he never he can't express any, the fact He can't express that I, I didn't want the record. Right. He can't say that. No, but he's, he did. There was rumors that he wanted to come back and play for Miami with Dan Marino. So, I mean, he would have broken the record, I'm pretty sure, in that offense. So I, I don't know. I think I, I take his word from his book, basically at face value, that he was sick of the losing and he didn't want to play for William Clay Ford Senior anymore, and he hated Bobby Ross. I mean, there's no question about yeah. that. I mean, if you talk to his ex teammates, he just we he watched went, him our whole lives. To put a fullback in front of him was blasphemous, to say the least. I'm just right. throwing that out there. <laughs> no, I, I I don't disagree with you. And you saw what you know. Lions fans thought, oh, now we won't have a running back that goes back, you know, loses two or three yards on a play, and you know. It, the Lions, they're saying the same thing now about Calvin Johnson. 
well, Calvin's gone, but now we're going to have all we're going to spread the offense around more. It's the same. These people are delusional, in my opinion, and you've lost the two greatest players in the history of the franchise offensively, anyway, other than Bobby Lane, um, prematurely, and you're still going down there sixty thousand strong to Ford Field every week. It's the only game in town. Hope hope reigns. Well, speaking of well, my my hope is that the drafting. They get so bad that they end up drafting Josh Rosen, and that and that coincides with the Ford family selling the team. So we have an atheist Jew starting quarterback <laughs> for a team that's been Bible thumping for the last four decades, from John Kitna to Bill Keenis to oh. um, Dan Orlovsky. So that's yeah. what that's what I want. I will come back if the Lions are so bad that they get the first pick. Whenever Josh Rosen leaves US, UCLA, and we get a Trump hating. <laughs> outspoken atheist Jew as quarterback of this franchise, oh. and then and then I will be all in. He'll, I, I will wear a Josh Rosen. That happens. Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, yeah. Eli, we I really appreciate your time, pleasure, and going over this. And I'm sure you'll get a lot of shit when it's. I, I was so afraid to even announce minute, that you were coming. Are, are people actually going to listen to this? You mean some I'm of the hoping. things I've said is going to get? Oh yeah, it's going to be out there. Oh no! I wouldn't be surprised if some of it doesn't oh. end on Deadspin or awful <laughs> announcing actually about the Pistons. But uh, if you. Yeah, it, it people will listen and and are listening, but I do appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. And you know, we're I'm going to be running this TV show, uh, hopefully getting off the air. So if you ever want to come on as a panelist, perhaps you know I really don't stay that that engaged anymore. I, I like being kind of a um, a fringe sports fan. Um, I never, by the way, except for maybe the '84 Tigers, most sportscasters, if they have any integrity. Root for themselves and not the team. By that I mean, I, people, what do you mean root for yourself? I'd say, okay, if it's 11-14 and the news comes on, i got to be there at 11-15, and it's 3-3 in the ninth, and the opposite and the opposing team has got the bases loaded, end the game so I can at least have all my highlights and go out there. So you root for the good story. You root for the, for, for the, for the underdog to win. And as a journalist, I think you're looking for the story rather than, oh, I, I hope our guys win tonight. Well, when you get so close to it and you see what you saw, exactly. it's like the people, you, know, right, right. you don't want to see how the sausage is made. And you saw exactly. you saw the sausage, obviously. I, I, these, these kids would come, like I said, the, the, the kid from, uh, they'd be Make-A-Wish kids, the cancer kids. And I'd say to Iverson, I'd say, Alan, when you go up to him, tell him that you'll be thinking about him when he's going through chemo and he's throwing up. Or tell him when you make your first basket tonight and you're and and you look at the scoreboard, you'll be thinking of him. And I'd say that he'd say, okay. and he'd go over there, and the kid and the kid would be, you know, he couldn't even speak it out. All Alan could say was, "Well, oh, really, it's really great you came all this way to see me. That really that really makes me feel good." Like, oh Jeez. my god. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> well, maybe maybe one day Hollywood will hire you to uh, co-write the uh, Denny McLean story because maybe. one day. There's got to be a movie made. I mean, that's got to be a movie. One last, and th- your book would be obviously would be. part of the uh, the story. I, I, w- I would like that to happen, but um, I don't. I don't think so because it doesn't have a happy ending. But my, my last that's Rashid Wallace thing, and I really liked Rashid. He didn't like to, to to work out a lot. Obviously, he was a great talent. That's why he hung out at the three point line. And so and so every day after shoot around on the road, the team would go to the, the arena. And the reason they created shoot-arounds in basketball was so that the players wouldn't, wouldn't stay up all night long. They had to be somewhere at 10 o'clock in the morning. That's why, they, that's why Bill Sharman created the shoot-around. Never it at least that. makes them go to bed 
because they don't do anything. They just kind of walk through plays, and, and the guy who's scouting the next team runs a few, and that's it. So they go to shoot around. They, they stagger there for maybe half an hour or so, and then they get through shoot around. So at that point, the young players – We'll then go to the assistant coach and work on a move because they stay for another half hour. Work on a move. The guys practicing. So the young guys are practicing. As soon as the shoot around ended, Rashid would stand on the baseline and say, "Come on, you fake ass gym rats, get on the bus." So his call anyways because fake ass gym rats was his big thing, and it was just it was just something Kelser and I would look at each other or Jerry would just laugh. But but that was that that was part of the personality. <laughs> Want to promote the business? Uh, still with Yaldo Eye Center? We give him a, a shout out. Or yeah, anything? he's one of my clients, and uh, I'm signing people on the radio all the time. I got two. two uh, he changes people's lives. LASIK surgery is a, is a miracle, and so my thing with him is I hire FM DJs to uh, get the surgery, and, and and I find advertising interesting, and and I like doing it. Creating campaigns. Well, we hope to hear from you soon, okay. and hopefully you don't get too much shit for coming on and talking to the Antichrist. So. <laughs> we will uh, we will take a break. I'll be back. We'll talk about uh, some uh, Twitter wars that I was in over the last few days, uh, my appearance on the Howard Stern Show kind of yesterday. We'll play that audio, and uh, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for joining us, Eli, and we'll a be pleasure. back after okay. a few moments. Thanks. This is a previously recorded episode. More human than Fred Human. More human Fred Human. Wow. I think three people caught that reference. <laughs> I've been listening to that song since the mid-90s, and every time I hear it, I think of Fred Human. Oh, you got problems. I am the only person probably in the world who who sings that Rob, or excuse me, White Zombie song. That's how far back it goes. And when it comes on the radio, I start yelling, more human than Fred Human. <laughs> That's what kind of fucking loser I am. You said Eli, Eli Zarrett. Wow. Holy shit. That was interesting stuff. Um, some of that Pistons news, I think, might end up going viral. I think we might have to isolate some of those clips. But uh, <laughs> that that Allen Iverson yeah. gambling. Like, I always heard stories. Uh, friends of mine who like lived next door to they knew a guy who lived next door to Isaiah Thomas, and he came to a bachelor party, and apparently uh, tried to throw a hundred grand down on a, on a rolling dice. Iverson did. No, th- oh, this was well, Isaiah, Isaiah was a gambler. So those, were, yeah, remember those the stories in the days when. He was cashing checks with that uh, um, guy who owned the party store, Denha, and Verge Jock reported on it from uh, Fox. Or it wasn't even Fox. It was just WJBK2 back then. I think Isaiah punched Verge Jock in the head. There was – you don't Which remember Denha, that I knew, I knew Denha's that owned party I, stores. Well, there's a lot of Denha's who own party okay, stores. Okay, fair. <laughs> so, but, yeah, there was some scandal about him gambling. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting stuff. Uh, we're going to finish the show with a couple stories that uh, probably want to hit. So on the way here, I found out on, on the way to the podcast. By the way, that's Bob Walton Spiel in the house. Uh, the proprietor of this joint who is on the microphone uh, right now because I can't kick him out because he owns the place. So <laughs> if he wants to come over and completely commandeer the show, it's his right. But on the way here, I was getting tweets from people in West Michigan that Bill Simonson, you might know him as the huge pile of shit, who has a show on 107.3 in Grand Rapids, and then it's simulcast throughout the state except Detroit, a very uh, unpopular show in town, or excuse me, in this state, his ratings aren't very good, but he likes to brag about his social media 
his Facebook likes, which I think are phony, his Twitter numbers, which he actually follows more people than he it, that that follow him, which is hard to do. You can buy those on Fiverr these days. Uh, no one brags about their numbers on social because yeah. it's all contrived. Yeah, it's 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 his numbers are especially garbage. Uh, but if you want to, you know, the real measure would be his ratings, and they're not very good. And we're going to get into that in the next couple months when Greg Henson hopefully uh, pounds his ass in the ratings. But anyway, yesterday uh, Bill Simonson went on Twitter and posted a poll that asked the question: Was you know making fun of his kids was that disgusting or? Uh, is that, you know, making fun of his kids' fair play? That was his poll. Like, first of all, the poll is ridiculous because it wasn't true. The question wasn't even accurate. The real question is, is that Bill Simonson named his kids Ace and Legend. Those aren't nicknames. Those are the proper Christian names that Bill Simonson and his ex-wife Melissa gave to his children. I could imagine. Ace and legend. You know, I have three kids. I'd like to say, hey, uh, babe, uh, what do you think about uh, legend for the new you know, look on her face? Legend <laughs> Waltenspiel. That just that just rolls right off the top. Oh, car. yeah. So as being the insecure uh, dipshit that he is, he went and named his kids Ace and Legend. Just putting their well-being at risk for their you know younger years. And then, okay. The only reason anyone knows his kid's name are Ace and Legend because he mentioned it on MLive.com in an article he wrote. He mentions it all the time on the air. And we poke fun at this insecure moron who calls himself huge and then named his kids Ace and Legend. That's like the douchiest thing you could possibly do, and it's like you're passion- it's passing the, the kids. douchiness down to your kids. Right. So when we make fun of Bill Simonson for being an insecure fuckstick, we're – we're including the fact that he named his kids Ace and Legend. Nobody knows Ace and Legend. Uh, we're not making fun of them. We're not saying that they scored poorly on a math test in middle school or element. Nobody knows them. We're making fun of you, Bill, for naming your kids Ace and Legend. It has nothing to do with your family. Well, wasn't it uh, Jason Lee named his kid Pilot, like Hollywood's well, all, well, yeah. Hollywood's real well, weird okay. with that. With the, do you think that it, back in the sixties or seventies or whenever they were born, when Frank Zappa named his kids Moon Unit and Dweezil, <laughs> right? <laughs> and someone said, "Well, what kind of fucking moron names their kid Dweezil or Moon Unit? Were they making fun of Frank Zappa, or were they making fun of his offspring?" Frank Zappa. Of course. Anyone anyone with an IQ over 75 would know that, which is why Bill doesn't get this. This is a goddamn hippie. That's the first thing out of your mouth when <laughs> yeah, you hear exactly. that. Like, <laughs> so anyway, Bill goes and runs this poll, which we ended up sabotaging. I sent my people over there, and it was like 83% to 17% in his favor. We overturned it to 53 to 47% in a matter of about a half hour, and then I gave up. I think the poll ended up being 55, 50, 45 in his poll in his favor. So 45% of the people voted that it was okay to make fun of his kids' names with absolutely no backstory or the question was completely tilted. So seven minutes ago, somebody posted on, on his Twitter, you can spin it any way you want, but articles and tweets, not criticism of your kids, but they're, po- they're making fun of you. And then his reply was, we can all agree to disagree. Thanks for the way you handled what you feel. Yeah. So then, so the, guy come, so the guy's on from three to six. I'm on my way here, and I start getting tweets from people that are listening to his show, which – 
I would rather stick needles in my ear than do that, <laughs> that he's spent the first 20 minutes of his program talking about me, basically. Oh, I used but to feel with, flattered. But without my name. He didn't mention my name, but he's just talking about me. Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, if you want to talk about me, you fucking studio coward, gangster, pussy, I'll call in your show. So on the way here, I call into his show, and I talk to his lackey uh, call screener. And I said, this is Jeff Moss. Put me on with the inse- your insecure, oafish, dumb boss. And he's like, what? My name is Jeff Moss. Put me through to your insecure, do- uh, dopey boss. What city are you from? <laughs> that was the question. How's that relevant? <laughs> what, what city are you from? West Bloomfield, Michigan. Okay. What do you want to talk to a uh, huge about? I just told you, put him on the phone. He'll know what this is about. He's been talking about me for a show without mentioning me. Are you going to scream? <laughs> No, I'm going to talk just like this. Okay, uh, we'll put you on. So I go on hold and have to listen to this garbage program for 55 minutes. I get to the studio. You had on speaker. I had to yeah. listen to it too. Right. Bob had to listen <laughs> to it. Bob. The fact that Bob had to listen to it on speaker, the fact that the DSR podcast is even still broadcasting from the studio after subjecting the man to that. Is against all odds. Bob's a patient man. So now yeah. Bob's in here because I told him. So, so I'm on hold. I got it on mute. And Bob's like, "What are you doing?" I go, "Well, I'm going to call in and tell this dummy that he's a oaf and he's insecure and nobody's making fun of his kids' names. We're making fun of him for naming them that." So Bob goes, "Okay, I want to hear that." So Bob comes <laughs> in. So he subjected himself to this. So I'm on hold and I'm trying to do show prep getting questions ready for Eli at the same time, listening to all of his ads for brands and some building material company or whatever. At this point, you were on hold for 45 minutes. It wasn't like you were on hold for... I was on hold for 45 minutes here. I was on hold for like 56 minutes in general. (laughs) Until I had... So now he he keeps saying, oh, we got calls from Detroit, West Bloomfield. So he knows I'm on on there. He finally, after 50-some minutes... Goes to says, okay, I'm going to Jeff in West Bloomfield. And you heard this, Bob. Yeah. I was still there. Oh, yeah. And I'm saying, hello, hello. And I ran in here like, yeah. uh, like I haven't ran before. Right. You've got bad, you've got gout problems. You, <laughs> you'd go to the bathroom and then he comes to me and Bob's just running in here. Oh, Jeff must have hung up. Aww. Was I still on the line, Bob? And you were still on hold. I was still on hold. Right. I was, so he's saying, oh, yeah. Jeff must be a huge fan. He's probably got a huge shirt on, and uh, but he's not there. He must have hung up. I'm still on hold. I was still on hold for another seven minutes while he's talking about me. <laughs> Once again, you coward. You what fucking child. pussy. Put me on the air, you douchebag. And if not, come on my show. We can run it both ways. We can do a simulcast, you dumb fuck. You keep telling people that the greatest thing that happened to you in the Detroit market is me focusing on you. That your show's exploding in the area on WTKA 1050 in Ann Arbor. I got news for you, you dumb fuck. Nobody in the Detroit area can listen to your show on TKA. The signal strength isn't that strong. Nobody's listening to you. You dummy. You pussy. You want to go on your show today and talk about me without naming me for... Basically, the whole at least from 
3 o'clock until I had to hang up and go on the air at about 4.40 or do the show prep. Eli, actually, I didn't hang up until Eli walked in. I was still on hold. Eli walked in. I had, the jig was up at that point. I had to go talk to Eli. You coward. See, he You must- little bitch. I'm renting space in your head, dumb fuck. I will call up again tomorrow. I will call up the next day and call you out. When are you going to sue me, you shitbag? You threaten everybody else. Nobody's been harsher on you than me. Where is the lawsuit? You know why there isn't a lawsuit? Because you know everything I've ever written about you, everything I've ever said about you, is true. And slander and libel, the defense for that, is the truth. And you're a public figure, you dumb motherfucker, because you tell everyone how many Facebook likes you have, 30-some thousand, and Twitter followers, Nine, ten thousand, and down. You've had four hundred podcast downloads. So don't tell me you're not a public figure, you asshat, you coward, sitting there in Grand Rapids in your studio, refusing to take my call. What are you scared of? You afraid of me bringing up your racist past? Are you terrified of me bringing up the police report your ex-wife filed against you? I don't even want to bring any of that stuff up. I just want to tell you you're a coward. And why haven't you sent me a cease and desist like you've sent every other competition in the world that you've had, including a guy who's now on your airways, Eric Zane, a complete sellout whore who, by the way, in the past has made fun of your kids' names himself. But now you two are real tight buddies because I guess Eric Zane was so desperate to be on the radio in the 70,000th biggest market in the United States, Grand Rapids, couldn't take his trade anywhere else, so he'd go lick your taint to get on WBBL, you pussy Eric Zane. Oh, I'd like to get... And then this guy. This guy has the nerve to go on Twitter, Bob. This is Eric Zane, a guy who a few years ago was making fun of the names Ace and Legend and said on Twitter, I will fight any scumbag in the street who attacks... Bill's kids' name. This uh. guy who said he said he's going to fight anyone. I said, when are you going to go out on 28th Street and start fighting yourself? I want to see a periscope of Eric Zane punching himself in the face. <laughs> That's what I want to see. You fucking sellout whore, Eric Zane. So he must revel in it because someone sent him a tweet bang, saying, at huge show, people hate you because all you do is talk about yourself, and he retweeted it. So he probably he probably just loves the attention. It's he loves like, the some of it. He yeah. doesn't like the attention I give him. Right. He's an insecure bully who I who I have taken to task, and the cowards at ninety six point one, instead of pushing this guy over the edge and taking my advice, Greg Henson's new show with Jim Costa and Drew McCarthy, iHeartRadio, you cowards, go after this guy. You've got the blueprint. He's ready to explode. I think we can go after him for the uh, for him being a grown man with gray in his beard, right? Like I like I have, but wearing his a flat brim hat Ugh. like Dontrell Willis sideways. Oh my God, he is, like like this guy. This guy really. They need you know how they examine the brains of people after they right. die. The NFL players to see if they had CTE. Right. They got to send when this guy passes. They're gonna have to send his brain to Austria because <laughs> the 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 level of insecure. The, I can't. I, I would have to do a five-hour show on Bill Simonson alone. As bad as the people in Detroit are, and they're bad, this guy's off the charts on every level. His sports takes, his insecurity, his cowardness. You're a coward. Put me on the air. Come on this show. 
talk shit about me all you want on Twitter and bash me. Do it on your show. And then when I have I have the balls to call you up, you act like I didn't I hung up when I was still on the air, when I was still on the phone on hold. You dipshit. So that's that's my challenge to Bill Simonson. Come on this show. Hell, I'll drive up to Grand Rapids, motherfucker. I'll come in your studio, on your turf, your home court. I will sit down, put some cans on, sit across from you, and tell you what I think of you. That'll be great ratings for you. That's all you seem to care about. I bet you get a lot more Twitter attention if you did that. All my people will listen to your show for that one day. If you think I'm so great for your brand, as you said last night, I'm so good for your brand down in the only place in Michigan that counts, Detroit, let me come into your studio. I will come on your show. You'll have control of the microphone. You'll have control of everything. What are you scared of, Bill? Put me on. I just found out Eric Zane went to high school with me. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Wow. I'm reading his Small bio. World. I'm reading his bio. Uh-huh. He's the guy I started at where? Uh, uh, radio at Warren Cousineau and Warren, where he was on WPHS. Oh, he's from down here? Yeah. Oh, so another one who failed to make it in the Detroit right? market. He's got to sit up there in West Michigan with all the other Bible thumpers. Please, Eric Zane. All right. <laughs> I'm off on that topic. I'm done. By the way, Eli Zer's last question. I don't know why people don't like you. Right. If Eli, if you're still listening to this, to this, uh, when I send you the file, that's probably the reason why some people don't like me. Uh, yesterday, I um, was once again referenced on another radio show, uh, but instead of a dung pile sh- piece of shit from Grand Rapids, this would be the greatest radio show in the history uh, of Marconi, the Howard Stern show, discussing once again. The Hit em with the High movement, which I basically uh, started when I went on Ryan Schulling's show in Lansing and said, hit him with the high. Hit him with the high. And it's become a national phenomenon. It's in porn, MLB Network, New England Patriots games. Did you see this? Was that Eric, Zane? Eric Zane. Oh, please. That looks like, <laughs> that looks like porn. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> anyway, back to Howard Stern. Sorry. No, no problem. You listen, you can do whatever you want. You show me some guy with a six-pack abs with no clothes on, <laughs> flexing, which that's what you just showed me, Eric Zane, doing. It's his Facebook it's your, page. It's your place. Look, I can't stop you. It's his Facebook page, Eric Zane for president. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my Lord. Anyway, <laughs> back to Howard Stern. So, man, that picture just really sent me. <laughs> Just end the show. Sorry. Let's just, let's just play the clip. Let's just play the clip, with Jessica. I, I, I think I've got to do this. Yeah. Okay. So I'm yeah. going to play the clip yesterday of Howard and uh, JD Harmeyer, media producer, talking about me. Well, just whenever this whole thing started, uh, you know, taking off, you know, when someone was pressuring it to be put on air. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you were suppressing some hit it with the Heinz, weren't you? Well, I was, uh, first of all, one person said it somewhere out in Detroit, and Jason thought it was the biggest thing to happen, and uh, he went around and made sure it got played, so there's that. <laughs> Howard, yeah. there's, something, there's something even more interesting going on, because, you know, when we get all these clips every day, we review them as a group, mm-hmm. and 
first of all, it pains JD to pull them. Like, he really doesn't want to, but he knows he has to. And when we review them, we all laugh, but JD just sits and rolls his eyes. Yeah, he doesn't want to laugh and hit him with a hind. Yeah. Is John in the room when everybody else is laughing? Hell with the hind. No. Ah, so JD's even yeah. a good soldier, I had heard even when John's not there. The first time somebody used hit him with the hind publicly in a shout out uh, JD wasn't going to give it to me and then there was a whole discussion that hey you got to do your job hit him with the high That's a, hold on it was like a, uh, never mind what it was, it was like somewhere like one person doing it because they knew Jason that's why they did it Yes. And that's why I didn't feel it was that. Big. It wasn't like some guy in a in a in a no wrestling event saying. Yeah, you were right the first time. Forget it. <laughs> Forget it. As I, as I said on Twitter last night, oh, excuse me on Periscope, um, I I'm not best friends with Jason Kaplan. Uh, I follow him on Twitter. He follows me. This show's a producer. I've never met the man. I'm hoping to next month maybe when I go to New York and take her, my wife, for her 40th birthday because what's a better 40th birthday present than me going to, for her, me going to Sirius and meeting Jason Kaplan? <laughs> I'm sure when she was you know, growing up, she figured when she turned 40, I'm going to have a great husband, takes me to New York City and drags me to uh, Manhattan to meet the associate producer of the Howard Stern Show. Yeah, well, you better take her shopping. I'm taking her. I'm supposedly going to take her to see the Kelly Ripa show. That's what she wants in return. So, yeah, okay, that's fair. But anyway, we're not best friends or anything. And I didn't do this to further Jason's agenda. I go on Ryan Schilling's show, and occasionally I drop Howard Stern resets. I've gone on and said, "Cello." I've never talked to Jeff the Drunk. I'm not friends with Jeff the Drunk. And I was not trying to further Jeff the Drunk's agenda by going on Ryan Schilling Show in Lansing and saying, Cello. I have said hey now to start my appearance on Ryan Schilling Show. I was doing that. I wasn't doing that to further Ralph Sorella's agenda. I think I said whoop whoop. Wasn't doing that to further the ICP agenda of Wolfie. I just thought it'd be funny, as a Howard Stern fan, to give an Easter egg to any Howard Stern fan listening to Schuling Show by saying, hit him with the horn. Now, Jason took that because he follows me on Twitter and gave it to JD. And yeah, Jay, I'm sure Jason was happy I did it, but there was no conspiracy. If there's any conspiracy... It's J.D. refusing to give that clip to Howard in the first place because he's butt buddies with John Hine. That's all there is to that scandal. But I'd much rather be mentioned without my name being used on the Howard Stern Show, my hero in life, than that pile of shit in West Michigan, Bill Simonson. So Monday and Tuesday, I've been mentioned on radio programs without my name being mentioned. I can't wait to find out on Wednesday... Uh, who's going to be talking about me without using my name. Uh, I guess we could talk real quick one more subject before we go. And that would be Nick Katsanika, former associate sports editor 
or assistant, excuse me, assistant sports editor at the Detroit Free Press. I thought that was the guy that owned cartoons. He, he might too. Oh, the I don't commercials. Know. It, it sounds like Nick Nick Kansanika, I think he might be Jewish. No, oh. not sure. <laughs> Greek. I don't know who knows. No, I think Jewish. Oh. Uh, Nick Opa Kansanika. As I said, was the assistant sports editor of the Detroit Free Press. At the time, Justin Spiro wrote his Drew Sharp plagiarism scandal story. He was only there for eight months at the Free Press, Nick Katsunika. I just like saying Nick Katsunika. Got that. <laughs> uh, then he went to NHL.com where he's writing for that website. We gave Nick Katsunika a chance – to address, as the assistant sports editor of the Detroit Free Press, a chance to address why the Free Press wasn't commenting on Drew Sharp stealing an article about Miranda McCoy from David Harnes of iSports Web. Instead of just ignoring me like almost everyone else at the paper did and not responding, Konstantinika kind of tried to, you know, wanted to have his cake and eat it too by addressing me. I'm getting the five-minute sign from Jessica. Why do I bother putting my hand up? Okay, yeah. five minutes yeah, left, five kids. Min- you could just say, just interrupt me. Hey, asshole, you guys shut up in five minutes. All right, well, I'll be nicer than that. Oh, yeah, I don't know why. Well, I don't hate you like other people, yeah. so. <laughs> well, maybe not this week. I haven't been ma- making fun of Theo. But back to the story. So Kantanika just said, I'm not going to comment it. So he kind of like wanted it out there that he wasn't going to comment it. But he refused to address the situation one way or another. Then he leaves in April to go to NHL.com. I give him another opportunity to address the situation. Are you going to comment on what happened with Drew Sharp and his plagiarism scandal? Now, he said, wouldn't it be cowardly of me to do it as I was walking out the door? So he wanted to have it both ways. He couldn't do it when he was employed because that would be backstabbing, I guess. or being- Four minutes. And he couldn't do it when he left because that would be cowardly. So I guess he just could never do it. Why am I bringing this up today? Because on Sunday, Nick Katsunika tweeted to Richard Deutsch that he had some issues with Ben Way from Fox Sports, journalistic integrity, or he had questions about it on how he broke the Ryan Locke story because he was on a bus, a media bus with... Alina Locked, Ryan's mom, and that's how he found out the story. And the gentleman who worked for the Free Press, who never addressed the Drew Sharp plagiarism scandal, never said a word about Mitch Album covering the Detroit Lions, even though he took a seven-figure, seven-figure, million-dollar gift to his charity, Mitch Album, and then continued to write about Matthew Stafford and the Detroit Lions in glowing terms. No problem with that journalism ethics problem for Nick Katsunika. No, he wanted, he had questions for Ben Way. Like, how the fuck do you even enter the fray after being mute about a guy at your own shop, too, actually? And then Katsunika gets into it with me again yesterday on Twitter, continuing to refuse to address the plagiarism whilst maintaining that he cares greatly about ethics. Well, you can't care greatly about ethics if you refuse to comment on it when you see it firsthand. Don't tell me how much you care about ethics, Nick Katsunika. 
Because you obviously don't. The guy that owns cartoons is Mark Constantakis. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Now we've got clarification. I'm, I'm guessing Mark Constantakis at what, where? Cartoons. Shore? Cartoons. Oh, cartoons? Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, I'm guessing he probably would have a more of a journalistic ethical problem with Mitch Album and Drew Sharp than Nick Katsanika. I'm sure he would. Yeah. So Nick, once again, another coward who refuses to comment. He says, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna comment to you because I don't. I don't. I think you're a scumbag, basically. Okay, go on Twitter. Without me, go on your Facebook page. You can call out plagiarism. I mean, it's not like Drew Sharp plagiarized and the they fired him, the Free Press, but they just never said why. The man still employed Nick Kansanika, and potentially maybe doing this again. And it'll be on your head when he does it. Or commit some other journalistic ethic morality crosses a line. That's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you, Bob, for uh, sitting in. <laughs> no, thank you. Listen, this is your chair. This is your table. Yeah. This is your Jessica. Ah. I'm owned by people now. <laughs> yeah. This is your Jessica. All right, uh, folks. Uh, on that slavery uh comment to end the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for setting the rights back like right. 100 years. <laughs> we will see you next Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Thank you for listening. Um, should I, before I go, I should mention that I do have uh, 17,000 Twitter followers, thousands of Facebook likes, <laughs> 300,000 podcast downloads from Podcast Detroit, 9,000 Periscope followers. Thank you and good night. This is a previously recorded episode of